Welcome to the NGA Elson Lecture. This series features distinguished contemporary artists whose work is represented in the gallery's permanent collection. The Honorable and Mrs. Edward E. Elson generously endowed the series. Since the early 1990s, Jessica Stockholder has been recognized as one of the leading and most influential artists of her generation. Characterized by the colorful arrangement of found and made materials, her multimedia, site-dependent, and autonomous works delight the eye and engage the mind. Described as paintings in space, Stockholder's complex installations sometimes appear chaotic at first glance, but gradually reveal, with careful observation, the artist's decisive strategies. Whether incorporating the architecture of its conception, climbing walls, hanging from the ceiling, or spilling out of doors and windows, Stockholder's art explores new pictorial possibilities, affirming the physicality of objects and their relationship to the mind and body in diverse, connected experiences. Her work is represented in the National Gallery of Art collection by Untitled, 1994, a gift of the Women's Committee of the Corcoran Gallery of Art. Stockholder presented the 22nd Annual Elson Lecture on April 2, 2015. I'm starting with a work that uh, was in Los Altos in 2013. It was called Crosshatch. And uh, then the the images will kind of jump back to some very early work, and I'll try to give a sense of how my work developed and how my thinking developed. Um, All of my work is uh, concerned with, or almost all of it, perhaps all of it, um, with uh, the relationship between picture-making and uh, three-dimensional experience of the world. And uh, so this, and, and the, the picture-making, it takes different forms. In this case, it, the ground of the intersection in Los Altos is taken as a picture plane. And, um, and the edges of the road uh, sort of frame the work. And the work is also always concerned with... Um, framing and boundary and with um, how physical the nature of the physical world acts as metaphor so being concerned with the actual boundaries and edges of things is um, also a concern with the edges and boundaries of thought Um, this work is a really early work from when I was in uh, undergraduate at UBC in Vancouver, and, um, and uh, it's on unstretched canvas. And I did start paint as a painter. I started. I love color. Always have loved color. Maybe uh, oftentimes color is sort of the starting point. I I love color because it is both embodied and disembodied. It it's part and parcel of materiality, it's um, on the surface of things, and uh, yet we see it because of light, which is sort of ethereal feeling and, and in motion, um, and light shifts, so the color of things shifts with the kind of light that's on it. And you can see that though I started as a painter, the, the works I'm showing you um, take different form. I, I think I made one or two paintings on, can, on stretched canvas, and I was um, overwhelmed by the power that uh, I or any person has making a painting, that every little mark you make on the canvas um, is, um, disrupts the whole world of the canvas. And inside of a framed picture, there's an illusion of space and atmosphere and emotionality that is 
I, I understand to be fictive, and fiction's not quite the right word with, with my work because there's no narrative. Um, there's not a story that I have in mind that I'm illustrating. But nevertheless, that kind of a, a painting space seems to me to be a sort of fictive space that's, um, that sits alongside the emotional interiority that each one of us experiences as our subjectivity. Um, so I um, quickly introduced other materials into uh, the picture making I was engaged in so that, so that I wouldn't be so powerful, so that there was more of the world that I had to respond to next to that fictive space that I was engaged in making. So the piece that you're looking at now, those are skeins of yarn that are colored all the way through. They're a solid color. And here I, um, it's the same work, but it's a small kind of collage image where I used a, a photograph of it together with the Vancouver landscape. I actually grew up in Vancouver in Canada. And uh, that particular view of the landscape where you're looking across the water and you always in Vancouver see an island, so you have a kind of double horizon line, one where the water meets an island and then the other where the island meets the sky. And you have this feeling of the water kind of being pushed up and flattening. Well, that feeling um, also exists in much of the work I make. So this piece is um, your skin in this weather-borne eye threads and swollen perfume in 95 at the Dia Center for the Arts. And so we're here standing in the back of the room. All of those colors um, kind of flatten out and appear to be a, a kind of a static picture from this point of view and certain other points of view. Um, but, but, they're, but they're not actually flat. They're in different places. And when you entered this work, you didn't have any sense of stability or um, stasis. Um, you, were, you were found yourself in the middle of the work. So, so much of the work, certainly this larger installation work, involves a, a feeling of being um, unsettled and then moving around and finding places from which the the image or the picture is is still and clear and um, and I think kind of timeless. I think pictures imply a certain kind of timelessness um, or they're an effort to place something outside of time and to carry an experience and information from one moment to another in time where you know, this work is called Landscape Linoleum. It's 95 in uh, uh, Belgium in the Middleheim Sculpture Park. This park, this is part of a park, and the park changes, the, the time of year changes. I think it was there for maybe six months, so it went through a couple of seasons. It went from summer, spring, summer, and into fall. Um, and the the sculptures, the bronze sculptures, are part of their permanent collection, and my work was a temporary work. That's a heat lamp in front of the white circle, and uh, there was a, there were swimming pools embedded in the ground. And um, part of what I was interested in there, which I'm interested in also in this work, which is called um, Vortex in the Play of Theater with Real Passion in memory of Kay Stockholder, who was my mother. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between um, artifice and a more direct kind of experience. So um, in this piece, uh, 
there's a theater light pointing at the wall, and it points at some kind of abstract expressionist work, uh, brush, roller brush strokes. And um, when I was a student, the um, abstract expressionism was kind of a bad was understood to be a bad thing, full of um, feeling and romance that was not very smart or intellectual. And uh, I, I, I think that art is a place that is um, full of feeling. It might be kind of a cold feeling sometimes, but it's nevertheless always full of feeling. In fact, being human is full of feeling. Um, and thinking and feeling are linked for human beings. Um, so I find that art is a place where those those where we that helps to make experience of that fact of being human, and that and the and the kind of work that I'm interested in is also uh, induces pleasure. I'm interested in the fact that art's pleasurable, and interested too in the fact that uh, we human beings are uh, pleasure seeking, and. Uh, and what that means about how we orchestrate ourselves and how we're civilized and how our politics are structured um, is part of why art matters. Um, you know, I had a, a child and noticed that uh, when he had his pacifier passed, you know, I don't remember how many months, people would, you know, be almost angry at me. You know, so it was like misplaced pleasure. There's a lot of social control about pleasure and, and who one has sex with. And um, drugs are understood to be kind of morally uh, wrong because they, you know, I mean, they call, you know, they're all about pleasure. Pharmaceutical drugs taken, you know, because a doctor told you to are okay, but drugs you just take for pleasure are not so good. So I, I think there's a lot of politics and uh, stress around what gives a person pleasure and how we orchestrate ourselves that way. Um, this work that you've been looking at is called On the Spending Money Tenderly, in 2002 in Dusseldorf. Some of those are real fruits in there, and most of them aren't. There's uh, different kinds of round balls, and um, again, the, you know, there is a kind of desire for those things. They're hand-scaled things. You can reach out and touch them. Um, and that work was about the relationship between, and this work too, which is called TV Tipped Toenails in the Green Salami in 2003. Um, they're, they're about the relationship between the size of the body, you're a person alone, and, and a large-scale display, a public viewing. So here you're looking at a bleachers, which is part of this work. Um, the bleachers is a place for many people. These big museum spaces are are, are set up for many people to be in them. They're, it's for being a collectivity. But art making is also about a single subjectivity. At least for the work I make, I'm often alone in the studio, not for these larger works, but I make a lot of work in the studio. And um, I'm interested in the space that, that both making art and engaging other people's art gives me to be aware of my own um, decision-making powers and uh, to develop my own thoughts as distinct from other people's. I, mean, I think looking at visual art, the onus is on the person looking to understand how it is that they see the work. And uh, and we human beings are herd animals, 
So that's not always an easy thing to do. We, it's much easier just to kind of move around with a crowd and kind of hear what other people say and be agreeable. So the, those larger works are about the kind of back and forth between, you know, in the experience of being part of a public and part of uh, and being a, just a very private, alone person. These images are part of a show that was in 2003 called Tabletop Sculpture in which I invited a lot of other people to be in the show with me. So you're looking at, this work is mine, but the work that you just saw was work by lots of other people. Um, Cindy Sherman, Heim Steinbach, Todd Papageorge, Marilyn Minter, Kim Adams from Canada, who you probably don't know, my cousin Macy Awad from Canada, my husband Patrick Chamberlain. Um, so some very famous people and some people who were friends of mine and family, um, former students, former professors, I was proposing that those people's work was a kind of context for my work. And I've spent a lot of time working in relationship to physical context, in relationship to the particularity of different spaces. Um, And in that show, I had some work like this one that you're looking at that um, were um, not attached to the wall and I was the tabletop sculpture title kind of came after Anthony Caro thinking about his work that sits on a pedestal and kind of falls a little off the pedestal. So I, I developed a way of working that is very aware of its context and its framing. So even a work like this one, it's clear that it hangs on a wall. It needs the wall. The space between parts of the work, the negative space, are as important to the work as the positive space of the things that I put there. Most of the work I've made that in the studio needs a wall, like this one. And, and, you, and the wall is a kind of picture plane. It functions as a picture plane, even if the work is very sculptural. Um, and, <clears throat> and I've since then developed different ways to ask that question about context. So later on, I'll show you some more work that does that. This work is called Sam Ran Over Sand and Sand Ran Over Sam from 2004 at Rice University Gallery. And... Um, here, the title in the title, I was I was proposing that um, things have character, that sand has character, just like a person named Sam might have character, that gesture has character, that the physic again that the physical qualities of things have character, and uh, if it makes sense to use the word fiction in relationship to my work, that is part of why. Um, that the character of materials and the gestures that accumulate by virtue of making things with them um, have character that acts a part in the work that I make. Um, This work, I really enjoyed the the different kinds of light. So you're looking there at a a digital projector as projecting two colors, and nothing else happens. The, um, The colors are still... And there are different kinds of light on the materials in the gallery. So the, if you have you know, a white light on styrofoam, it kind of exaggerates the whiteness. And uh, the digital projector that was in that work, there was also a, a, television sc- a blue television screen in the TV um, tip toenail pink, you know, pick piece that I can't remember the title of. Mm-hmm. Um, those, that's the closest I've gotten to making video art. 
and I'm not um, compelled to make video art. Um, I'm, I think I'm really uh, attracted to the stillness of objects and the stillness of a kind of picture making that I break. I mean, this it, this is not the work you're looking at. It's they're not flat, but they can appear flat because things flatten out against the wall. Um, but I um, and everything, nothing lasts forever. Um, materials break down, and I guess stone and uh, you know steel and uh, bronze last longer than some things. Um, but I, I think I'm interested in the very slow speed of things rather than working with the, the kind of quicker speed of um, film or video. So this, this work was called uh, Flooded Chambers Made. It was in uh, Madison Square Park, and it's presently um, at Laumeyer Sculpture Park in St. Louis. It was the, the relationship between the work and the park was altered slightly, but most parks have paths in them, um, like Madison Square Park does. And uh, this work is about bridging the path so that there's a bleachers on one side, and you look down on the, the sculpture from this point of view on the bleachers. And on, looking on the other side of the bleachers, there's a garden planted. And in, at Madison Square Park, there, it wasn't there long enough for the garden to really uh, take root and become as established as I would have liked. It was only there for, I think, three or four months. Um, but um, I, I enjoy the relationship between things that are... Uh, this is Laumeier Sculpture Park. Um, I enjoy the relationship between the grass that's alive and the plants that are alive being uh, controlled formally. A, a park is not like the woods. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's full of artifice and uh, design, and, and it's a very formal construction, like the work that I put in the park. Um, so I, I'm, I, as much as I'm attached to the control and stasis of picture making and I'm really interested in form and formal structure, I'm also interested in disrupting that structure and uh, making it difficult for me to understand, me first and then the people I share the work with. Um, I, I'm interested in difficulty in art. Um, so a work like this one, these various parts don't always sit comfortably together. And uh, they're, they're, I think they're easier to see in photographs, actually, than in life, because in life, because photographs do flatten everything, and, and I usually take pictures from an angle where things look uh, good. I don't, I don't tend to take pictures that are um, where there's nothing to look at. Um, but when you're walking around these pieces, there are moments where there's not so much to see. Um, so this, this selection of works are from the studio 2007. And I, I always make work in the studio um, alongside planning for larger projects. And I like being alone in the studio. I don't have help in the studio. The things I make there are, for the most part, things that I can make alone. Um, I, I don't always know what I'm doing in the studio. I don't have to know what I'm doing. I can just putter around and have things suggested by what's lying around. 
or I know exactly what I need and I have and I go purchase it. I mean, this work is made with a a painting that was bought at Odd Job, Odd Lots, I think the store was called. So it was a inexpensive painting that was made by somebody else in a factory that had no name on it. And um and I think I, I started to work this way in relationship to material, not because I um, saw the material so well, but actually because I didn't see it so well. I, I didn't grow up into in a family where people made things. My father wasn't in the garage making things all the time. So I think for me, making art was a way to tend to seeing and to develop my scene in the world, um, in a, and which is still happening. This piece is called Peer Out to Sea. It was at the Crystal Palace um, of the Reina Sofia in Madrid in 2010. And uh, in that piece, I the, the Crystal Palace was built as part of a World's Fair, and I understood it to be kind of a big tchotchka, you know, like it does, it didn't have a purpose except to be in the park and be involved with the nature of the park and the sky. Um, so I kind of addressed it um, in a, in a kind of more romantic way, I think, than I usually make things, um, and was very cognizant of the volume of air that the. Um, that the Crystal Palace held, and and also that birds kind of came in and out through the glass. It was not, um, it wasn't a tight membrane between the inside and the out. There's the part of the platform there is burnt. The brown is a kind of the result of burning the wood. The green um, that you see in a star shape there is algae, a kind of duckweed that was growing on the surface of water. So it's a star-shaped pond, and the orange was a, a pigment. And you couldn't walk on that, um, on the lower part. You could only walk on the, on the pier. It was a kind of a pier um, that was built inside, pointing into the building, which could have been built outside to the man-made lake that was there. And the peering out to sea could be, uh, you know, standing on a pier to look at the ocean, that kind of sea, or it could also be peering out of your eyes to sea. Um, and, and I often, um, I mean, I enjoy that kind of uh, multivalence in titling, and I also understand the materiality of my work to be meaningful in that same way, that materials mean a lot of different things. And uh, when you put uh, a, a word to a material or to a thing, you call a chair a chair, the word chair is a very quick, simple uh, label for a very complex experience of any chair. Any chair is made out of particular materials that come from a particular place, made by people or factories, um, of a time or often nostalgic for another time. Um, there's always, and then there's history and like of use embedded in material. So there, so all things come with many meanings associated. This is a model you're looking at for an exhibition in 2010 called The Jewel Thief. Um, Ian Barry at the Tang Museum invited me to collaborate with him to co-curate a show 
And he, that was a kind of open invitation. He didn't know what he meant by co-curating, and neither did I. And we, we spent, I think, about a year talking back and forth and thinking about it. And um, in the end, I designed this kind of set of pedestals that move from the inside to the outside. You're looking at the largest one here, which I think was 14 by 14 feet. So the pedestals turned from pedestals to kind of inside-out rooms, and there's a platform that I made that's kind of, a, it's a, both a sculpture and a platform pedestal. Um, there's work here by lots of people who are more or less of my generation, um, people that both Ian and I knew from the East Coast, some from California. I don't think there's anybody here from Europe, so it's kind of a North American show. Um, except for some of the work from the collection of the Tang. A lot of work came from the collection of the Tang, too. So this was, again, I think perhaps Ian invited me to do this with him on the heels of the tabletop sculpture exhibition that I showed earlier. Um, and it was an, another way to, to explore questions about both context and, um, and also questions about display. Um, one of the really nice things about making a conventional painting or a sculpture that sits on a pedestal is that there's a real clarity about how that thing is in the world. It's very self-contained. Um, and I have a sort of envy of people who make work that's self-contained in that way because my work is sort of the opposite. It's always bleeding past its edge and very dependent on how it's displayed and where it's displayed. And um, there's always a kind of blur between its edge and the edge of the place it's in. So in this exhibition, there, were, um, there was a cold corner and a warm corner. There were... Um, you know these pedestals that became absurd became rooms. Um, this and there was a lot of work like this by Jim Hyde. That's furniture. There were Jorge Pardo chandeliers, Jim Hodge's wallpaper. So there was a lot of work that intersected design. Um, and this is Richard Rezac's work in the foreground on this platform I made. And I, actually, I really love his work because it's so completely self-contained. If you came across it in a flea market, it would be still very much what it is. It kind of holds on to itself. And then I also really like this work by Lawrence Wiener, and I like um, the... Um, I like the way... Well, I'm very interested in abstraction. And language, I think, is about as abstract as it gets. So ironically, we always think that language is uh, explaining everything. But language is all about symbol and words standing in for um, thoughts and feelings in an effort to communicate with one another. Um, but... Uh, and, and I was once asked to be on a panel at Yale about abstraction... And it was the first time I thought, well, is my work abstract? And, you know, and, and I spent some time thinking about what that meant. And I don't think that my work is um, essentially abstract. I think it's more literal. It, it is, I present physical things that create the opportunity for experience and also the opportunity for a kind of projection of, of interior life. Um, to kind of reify one's sense of being um, an interior-lived person. Um, 
But, but I am also really interested in abstraction and what that means. And uh, more recently, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how, um, how difficult it is not to live in a world of abstraction. It's actually really difficult to tend to more immediate experience of things. And um, it's also difficult to make things that are eccentric and detailed that don't rely on abstract thought. I mean, rectangles and geometry are a kind of abstraction that order things very quickly and neatly, and my work exists entirely within a kind of a structure of rectilinearity. Um, this show was at the Aldrich Museum called uh, Hollow Places Court in Ash Tree Wood. The whole show was called that. This work um, is one work with all these leaning boards. It's called Ash Tree Wood. And uh, um, they are offered me a, an ash tree that had been growing on the grounds of the Aldrich Museum to work with. That had, it had been drying for a couple of years. And I worked with a screen printer, Gary Lichtenstein, to um, print on these boards. And the draw, so I think there are like six or seven screens that we printed kind of randomly on the boards, uh, kind of randomly in that there's definitely a structure. One set of screens is on top, one set of screens is on bottom, and the color families are separated top to bottom too. But the boards can be um, installed in many different configurations, and there was a kind of a horizon line suggested between the two groups of images, and the, and the horizon line at the very bottom lined up with a window that was in the space. And um, p- part of what I was thinking about there is um, growing up in Vancouver in Canada, there was a lot of uh, First Nations art um, all over Vancouver, you know, often in the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Museum of Anthropology there is an incredible museum. In the parks, there were totem poles, and um, I find those traditions, the Haida work, the Kwakutl work, the Coast Salish work, um, incredibly sophisticated and influential for me. Um, so one of the things that I started to think about in relationship to that work was that in that work, the eye shape is often orchestrating the imagery, um, a kind of oval eye shape. And the work, at least traditionally before screen printing, um, the work was on physical, carved into physical objects, totem poles and other objects, and that the picture-making embedded in that work was dictated by the shape of the eye. And uh, that's a very different tradition about picture-making than the one that I am embedded in that is related to architecture and windows um, and walls. Um, so I, I spent some time thinking about that um, and, and enjoying tr- kind of trying to broaden my sense of picture making. So this is a set of drawings that um, are kind of from 2012 to 13. I've been calling them strip drawings. And uh, I have made about uh, something over 100 of them. And they are related to thinking about alphabet in relationship to architecture. I, when I, I moved from New Haven to Chicago, 
And part of the reason I moved was to try to shake things up for myself a little, you know, try to see if I could alter my frame of reference in my work and my life. And um, I proposed to myself that alphabet is another kind of shared structure like architecture um, that's very formal and abstract um, and related to different kinds of geometry. So with these drawings, I'm thinking about um, the way in which shapes and forms are, and line is used for alphabet. But, and and the, to describe the work, I, I sound kind of rational. But in fact, making each drawing is kind of like jumping off a diving board and not knowing where I'm going. So the drawings set up this nice place to be where I, it's an, each one is an invitation for me to not know what I'm doing, to kind of disappear into something um, and find something that's a surprise. There's both a structure and a chaos involved. Um, this is uh, last summer, 2014. The show was called Erstwhile and Notwithstanding. It was kind of the title of this situation. It was outside of Milan in the region of Piacenza, part of a group of shows um, that Paolo Baldacci orchestrated there. And um, it was in an, in an old bowling alley, uh, or bocce ball alley, um, so it was a, a kind of very a, a space full of atmosphere and uh, and not proposed for art, and I built this um, kind of platform that intersected the bowling alley, um, and built the white walls to install a, a group of works from the uh, from my studio. This work was called Lay of the Land, and I made that piece there, but there was also a handful of other works that were from the studio. So I embraced the qualities of the bowling alley, but also inserted into the, spa- the, the bowling alley a structure that would uh, um, suffice to present work that needed a kind of clean, um, white cube kind of space. Um, and I really enjoyed that, um, to be able to kind of have my cake and eat it too, in a way. The next work that's coming up is a piece that I made in uh, Miami this uh, for the Miami Basel Fair um, called uh, Tangled Angle. And uh, I, I believe it's still there. It was part of the public exhibition. And uh, I don't think I've made anything quite like this before. It, it was uh, Parts of it were made in Chicago. And uh, these are bollards. They're security bollards. Ideally, if the work is installed somewhere permanently, there will be metal inside of them. But in this case, they were just the plastic covers. And the lamps were on all the time. This was before they got hooked up, and they're the best photographs I have. Um, so the lamps were on at night and during the day. And uh, this work comes from the drawings that I was making. It's a set of triangles that intersect each other. So if you had a plan of the work, the graphic is a set of intersecting triangles. And then the the blue bollards and the yellow bollards um, take fill up a kind of volumetric space with the triangles. And then there's a the lampshade is a kind of triangular shape that is a nice occasion for a kind of drawing line. 
And there you have it with the lights on at night. Um, what else to say? <laughs> um, this piece was... I've, I've been working with Kavi Gupta Gallery in um, Chicago, and he's offered me this opportunity to have things made. So this lampshade here is was fabricated by somebody who's really good at working with metal, something that I couldn't do. And um, the that's a really lovely opportunity. And but I also really value making things myself in the studio. And I understand um, making things to be a way of thinking. And I would never have been able to make that work and give instructions to the person I was working with who made the metal parts if I wasn't also making things myself. Um, so I, I'm really invested in the way in which the, the way things are made is, matters and um, is evocative. And I, and I care about skill, even though the particular skills I have are eccentric. Um, this work is called uh, Like Water If Pond as Lily, and it just opened uh, a couple months ago at Mission Bay Hospital in uh, San Francisco. It's a permanent installation there, part of the entryway of the Children's Museum. The whole hospital is new, and it's part of the entryway um, so that you, you, if you're actually in San Francisco, you can see the work because it's part of the entry and the lobby. You, you, you don't, you're not in a secure area. Um, and this took, I think this was in process for about four years, four or five years. The, the uh, outside pieces operate as benches. People can sit on them, and they're constructed in a way thinking about children not being able to climb them. And then this, this bench inside echoes the ones outside. And there's artisanal glass in the, in the window here between the inside and the outside. So the glass has a kind of thickness to it and texture and really beautiful kind of rich color. And the shapes in the glass don't um, mirror the shapes on this frieze inside or the benches, but, but work with them and play against them. Um, so it kind of break. It's my hope is it's kind of a break in the architecture. It it relies on the architecture. It's dependent on the architecture. But it, um, but it also is a kind of surprise in the architecture. And uh, when I was a kid, I remember. Um, certain kind of architectural details getting stuck on, particularly I have a memory of uh, blue ceramic tiles that we used to drive by in Vancouver, and how, how the kind of small, physical, kind of intensely sensual details can be really gripping. Um, so my hope is that for, you know, this, this work is there for children and for adults, and, but for the children, my hope is that they'll be involved in the texture of the concrete and the meeting of the bottom of the bench here is concrete and the top is a, a, a resin. So they're different materials. They feel different. They hold color differently. And uh, my hope is that they'll be engaging in both small ways and then in a kind of larger conceptual way. And, um, and insofar as the work is fictive that it will give um, 
people a, a place to um, process all the things people need to process in hospitals. This is the, this next set of works is from a show I just had in Paris called, and the show was titled "Palpable Glyphic Rapture" at Natalie Obadia Gallery. And uh, this this work is called the same, "Palpable Glyphic Rapture." That's um, a poster, kind of inexpensive poster print from a photograph with paint and some tape on it and <clears throat> yarn that hangs down and a piece of uh, stone that kind of leans against the uh, photograph. The fo- you wouldn't really know what the photograph is, but it is um, a, photo- a kind of blown-up, pixelated, disintegrated picture of a belly, and uh, it comes from a set of, of such images that I solicited from women friends of mine, and perhaps I'll do some more work with those. And this work is called Set Eyes On, and it was a work that I made while I was there. Um, it, it kind of follows on the work that I made in Italy that was called Lay of the Land, where I'm using um, piles of plastic containers, and I like them because they, um, they're colored, they're solidly colored. So the light bounces around inside of them and creates, in this case, you know, red, yellow, and green pieces of color. And the color fills the space of the basket. I, I'm also interested in um, questions of value in all of these materials. The tables that these mirrors are screwed onto, some of them are older tables that have more weight and history um, than, the cheap materi- than the cheap baskets. And uh, so I'm, I'm interested in, I don't control all of those details, but I'm interested in the fact that every material brings with it a lot of information. So this is another work, called, this is called Gross National Growth, and uh, this is a, a kind of playing again with the thing hanging that's reflected in a mirror. So when you look in the mirror, you see a, a picture, again, another a picture that involves um, a shifting relationship to the thing that's reflected in it. And these driveway mirrors I've enjoyed. I've been making a lot of work with them because of because they reference the oval shape of the eye that I talked about earlier. And they're mirrors, and I can play with all the kind of lovely things that you can play with in a mirror, but you don't see yourself in them because they're convex. You don't, um, you're not focused on yourself when you're looking at them. You see more other parts of the room reflected in them. Um, this work is called Edges Crowded. So this is this is a selection of recent work that I you know showed in the that show. I enjoy this. This is a small work on the wall. A work like that is exists just between you and your head. It doesn't involve the body the same way that this work does, where you have to walk around the work and um, walking around the work. There's a memory plays a part where all of the uh, when you're moving from one side to the other, your memory inflects what the image is like. And this is uh, I think I'm ending with this. This is called Celestial Season. It was at the Armory Fair in New York in this March, 
And again, those are the two mirrors reflect. In this work, you, the, the kind of action of the piece happened above your head in a place that you couldn't see. And you could see the, the top side of this hanging metal was a kind of violet color and a chartreuse color. You could only see that in those mirrors. And art fairs for artists are a, another kind of context, kind of a challenging context where things are always a jumbled and... Um, that's the end of those images. Things are always jumbled, and um, uh, so I'm kind of think, trying to think about ways to make sense of that context. I think art is always contextual, so art changes in relationship to circumstances that are made available. And I'm, I'm happy to answer a question or two if people wish. I can hear you. <laughs> very complex and intellectual and not immediately understandable maybe to the person who isn't familiar with what you're trying to communicate. How do you want people to look at your art? I, I think it's, some, it's, it's immediately understandable to some and not others. Uh, but I, I want people to look at my art. <laughs> There's no particular way to do that. Everybody has their own tools for looking Hi. I was wondering if you could talk about your approach to a public commission versus a commission for indoors, a gallery scale commission. Uh, just what, what different thoughts go through your head and how is the process different? Well, it's different. There, it, it's not only about being commissioned indoors or out, but being in the studio alone is one thing. I have only my skills to rely on and um, the, my capacities to make things and buy things. And, uh, and I don't have an audience, and I don't have to explain myself. Um, then, so working, you know, to make a piece in a, ga- in a gallery or museum, those are generally temporary pieces. The upside to their being temporary is that a lot can happen on a large scale very inexpensively. It, the work doesn't have to be archival. It doesn't have to last. Um, so I can make things with, you know, paint on the wall and tape and paper mache and you know, all kinds of things. And um, but but in that case, you know, when I work with other people to take advantage of a short period of time and to engage people's skill, um, then I have to be articulate. I have to kind of at least appear as if I know what I'm doing. And, and make use of those people in that way and communicate something to, to move things along. Um, and then a, a, a permanent work, I've done fewer of those, but I've done a handful of permanent works. Um, that's another challenge altogether, particularly if it's outdoors, because the array of materials that will withstand the elements outdoors is much smaller and more expensive. Um, so, it, so every circumstance is different. And uh, and I really and I value all of those things. I mean, I think for me, I, I the work is kind of rooted in a studio experience. I wouldn't have things to do, you know, in that more public way if I didn't work in the studio. But it's really um, a, a gift to be able to work with materials and people and skills, you know, outside of the studio. Can you explain a little bit more about uh, what kind of studio you have? Um, right. you, you mention it so often. 
Well, it's, it's been different over the years. Right now I have a studio that's right next to the Logan Center at the University of Chicago, Midway Studios. It's um, a really beautiful old building that it was used, the former studio of Laredo Taft, who's a Chicago sculptor no longer living. And, uh, I don't know, maybe he died maybe 50 years ago or something. Um, and uh, it's about, I guess, 1,200 square feet. Really lovely building. I mean, I, for me, it's hard, harder to think about having a studio that's a domestic space. I, I, if I, I'm really happy not to have a domestic space as my studio and uh, to be able to make a mess in it and leave it there and come back. And... Jessica, you use a tremendous range of materials, um, objects, things you might buy from a hardware store with a huge range of associations. But almost never, it seems, do you recycle material. Um, mm-hmm. There's very little that has its own history of use and wear. Can you say something about this and how are you making an art that in some way engages with the present in a way that's um, partisan in that sense or ideologically determined in, hmm. by those issues? Um, well, I think that I, I'm not interested in um, fetishizing objects. I'm interested in the fact that the, the material world is substantially not me. So by, by, by recycling, if I was recycling them and owning them and developing my own history with them, they would become more me. Um, they would, at least for me, the maker, they would muddle my relationship to them as something not me. So that matters. Um, whether they're determinately of... I mean, yes, I care that I'm about this moment... I care about, I've noticed over my life making things some decades now that the quality of the material world has changed. Um, and there, there's not an idea, I don't make things to kind of reveal something ideological about that change, but I care about it. You know, I have politics about it and care about it. I'm disturbed that going to the big box stores and buying things and putting them in my car, I can see them in the dump, you know, a few years from now and everybody around me. So I'm aware uh, that my work, my work calls my attention to the quality of the material landscape that I live in. And that, that matters to me and I hope to other people. Yeah. The first uh, earlier... Uh photographs that you showed showed a crosswalk that was painted was that a place where people actually drove or and what the, happened to it after the installation was finished the first piece i made that way was called color jam i think it was the second second one of those works that you saw um and it was in Chicago. The Chicago Loop Alliance invited me to make that work. They're a civic organization, so they had really good relations with um, the political people in Chicago, with the people who owned the buildings there, with businesses in the buildings. I, I think it's really um, amazing that the work happened, that because all the parts of the work fell onto different parcels of ownership and different kinds of law applied to the different parts of the, you know, the, the road, the sidewalk, the, the, the commercial buildings. Um, and it was temporary. It was up for three or four months. Um, 
and it was really and yes, cars drove through that intersection. The amount of color that was on the road was kind of negotiated with the city, and uh, they were concerned, rightly so, I think, that drivers not be confused. Um, the second one I made in Los Altos was part of a show that SF MoMA orchestrated there. Um, and <clears throat> that was that's a much quieter city. It's not a big city. It's a small town. So I th- think there wasn't the same concern. And again, it was temporary. It was up for some months. I would love to make a work like that that was permanent with t- you know colored tile and actually be involved with the color of architecture and have something like that exist permanently. But I think that's very unlikely given the complexity of ownership. And did you have to scrub and clean afterwards? No, I didn't do anything. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I have a kind of two-part question. Um, first, you've taught for a long time, and I've also noticed that there are a lot of younger artists who, who do something like what you do. I don't know if those two things are related, but I'm, I'm curious uh, to hear a little about teaching and you know, the idea of, of followers. Well, teaching these days, since I've been a teacher, hasn't been the same kind of apprenticeship situation that teaching is, I guess, still in some parts of Europe and, and what it used to be. Um, the teach, all the teaching I've done, I've been sort of part of a team that's influenced students, not a single voice. So I think my voice has had authority, and I've mattered to students, but... I, I've also not been, um, I haven't had students who make work like mine and I've mentored them to make my work. That would make me really uncomfortable. Um, I don't know that it should make me uncomfortable, but it does make me uncomfortable. Um, I think that the we have a kind of bracket for judgment at the moment that, that says that our work should be original. And... Um, you know, encouraging a student to make work like mine wouldn't be doing them a favor if they were my student and their work looked like mine. Um, I, I don't actually believe necessarily that, that that will always be the ethos we work with, but it is now. And, um, I mean, my, my work is in line with, you know, it comes from a history of, like, Schwitters, Frank Stella, Judy Pfaff, um you know, other people who've worked with the edges of picture making in relationship to space. And, um, and I, I think that I, I hope that, you know, maybe I've had some influence, but how would I know? <laughs> um, I want to go back to, you were talking about um, your work not necessarily being linked to, um, or not specifying to be abstraction. Um, and going back to the... Um, uh, exhibition that you uh, co-curated with the other artists. Uh, I noticed a lot of the um, artists that you you were showing, um, you were talking about Richard Rizek's work and very, uh, kind of being a very um, peculiar or very uh, kind of in context to abstraction. It it seems the series of artists that you were showing in that exhibition, um, um, I'm noticing that the figure was very important activating the space and um, I'm noticing the pattern of the platform that you're using literally, and uh, I was just curious. And do you look at um, the idea of somebody um, viewing your work um, figuratively to be um, important or significant to activate your space or activate your work? 
or is it just necessarily just based off of um, the collection or the series of objects that you collect over the years? I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Um, it, the person I co-curated with was Ian Barry, who's a curator, not an artist. Um, so, and that mattered. He was a very good curator. And I kind of learned a lot about curating. By, you know, I kind of do things without... Um, uh, I'm, I'm open to my thoughts turning at any moment. I make art so that my thoughts will turn. And so when he kind of mapped out where everything would hang in a model, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get, when we get to hanging things, we'll shift. No, actually, we hung things quite like he had it mapped out in the model, and, I, and it was great. I mean, I was really... So I learned a lot from him that way. I mean, I, in terms of... I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by figurative, but yes, I'm interested in the relationship of the work to the body in space, to the figure... And um, in terms of how things are in space, where they are in the room in relationship to the body, I think the body, one's body is a measure of things when you come into a room. And the larger work I make, off, most often there's a kind of stepping from the size of a body to something bigger, and the work is a kind of uh, bridge between a body and the architecture in a way that way. Architects think about that too. I mean, most buildings have that kind of stepping built into them also. So, and, and that show, yes, the work was, I think Ian was, I think, quite focused on it being um, a collection of abstract work. I never really put that, I don't make that distinction in my mind. You know, when I look at figurative work, I'm, my, my immediate entree into looking at work is abstract and formal, and then I come to the imagistic narrative embedded in picture-making second. So it's just how, I mean, I think people really are different. People's minds are constructed differently in relationship to those things. Is it all right that that was the last question? I think we could keep you here all afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.